We continue in our study in the book of James as uh, we are uh, now in chapter 2, uh, firmly moving along. And uh, probably one of the most familiar passages from the book of James is what we're looking at today. Uh, our focus is chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, turning to verses 14 through 26 of James chapter 2. Also, the text is there on, an, on the insert in your bulletin as well. Listen as I read God's Word. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Let's pray. Father, as your words that you gave to your people just 2,000 years ago are read, and now we hear them with our ears this very hour, we understand them with our minds and our hearts. I pray that we would also seek to apply them to our life, even as we leave this place, as we understand what it means to know you, to worship you, to follow you, to yield and submit our very selves completely to you, and that our lives would be impacted by your truth, by your grace and your kindness. Lord, help us understand your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's say that we lived in a place not here, of course, but in a place in this world where you could actually be put to death for your faith. Let's just try to, I know that's hard, very hard, truly, to put your mind in that place, but try to think. We lived in a place where you could be put to death for your faith. And let's say you actually were then brought to trial in that place. And the charge against you was that you professed and that you lived and acted in your life as a Christian. That was the charge against you. That you were not only stating but also living as one who followed and worshiped and yielded their life 
to Jesus Christ. And he was the Lord over your life. That's the charge against you. And so there you are on trial. You're on the stand, and they ask you questions, and you try to answer as best you can, and then they dismiss you to sit down next to the, the one that is trying to defend you. But then they begin calling up witnesses. And let's say they invite all your family members, all those who know you very well, and begin just driving question after question, trying to find out if the charge against you actually can be given testimony by those who are giving witness on the stand. After they go through your parents, your siblings, maybe you have a spouse or your children, every single one of them are asked several questions. Then they ask your coworkers and your job to come up. Those who work alongside of you every day and ask very similar questions, wanting to find out the accuracy of the charge or not. After they ask your coworkers, then your closest friends outside your family and outside of work, Friends you've had for years and years that have known you the best. They ask similar questions, just riddle questions over and over again, trying to confirm and prove that this charge is true or not. Then they ask members of your church to come and be witnesses. And they ask them the same questions, those who see your faith, and they ask questions over and over again. What if that were to really, truly happen? Would the jury leave, deliberate, and return? And would the conviction be guilty as charged? Would the evidence show that you're guilty of truly living as becomes a follower of Christ? What would be the answer? Really, that's kind of what James, in this section of Scripture, I believe, is posing to us the issue at hand. Evidence in the life of a a believer, of one who professes faith, must be accompanied by also good works, deeds, actions, that which show and evidence a faith that is real in the heart of a person. James is truly challenging at the heart of the matter of what true faith is, whether or not his audience back in the New Testament early church around Jerusalem, the Jews who were reading this letter and understanding what he was saying, truly matched what they did with what they were professing to be with their mouth. So first, we're going to look at the spiritual argument that James is putting forth to his reader. And the first focus point of this argument is that faith without works, James is arguing, is not genuine. Faith without works is not genuine. Look at verse 14. And what good is it, he asks, my brothers... If a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such a a faith save him? 
It's interesting, James asked if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds. He doesn't say if a man has faith but has no deeds. He's careful in how he even poses the question, you see. And the way he even asks the question, if a man claims to have faith, is already beginning to build his argument by his question. He's already strongly inferring that one can claim something, but it may not be genuine. By even the way he asks the question, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save him? Remember the target audience here as we started the book, as we went through this beginning part of James in chapter 1. It's, of course, the younger church being established, made up of mostly Jewish converts who were under the government oppression there around Jerusalem and Judea, mostly limited resources, not on the higher end of economic status, but on the lower end probably. And in that context, some were certainly struggling to give of their own resources to those in need and were less fortunate, even more less fortunate than they were in their limited resources, and they were struggling. And so James is challenging them. He says in verse 16, if one of you says, Go, uh, say, uh, suppose a brother, verse 15, is without clothes and daily food, obviously someone in great need. And then he says, suppose one of you says to him, well, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. Well, what good is it? What kind of, in other words, what kind of faith is that if someone is blatantly, clearly in need right before your eyes, and you just look at them and say, I'll pray for you, brother. Hope you're warm and well fed. Now, let's go. And you do nothing of any effort or attempt with a heart of compassion towards such a need. James challenges his reader here that ignoring others' needs is like professing faith without any actions connected to it. It's empty. It's empty. And that's what he is challenging the reader. Faith without works it's just not genuine. It doesn't have the, it doesn't hold the veracity. It doesn't pass the litmus test, as it were, when opportunity arises and is completely ignored time and time again. Faith without works is not genuine. But in the argument, he continues, and he makes the second thought. Faith must be also not just there, present in word, but must be accompanied by works. Faith must be accompanied by works, verses 18 to 20. But someone will say, maybe you have faith and I have deeds. Well, James says, show me your faith without your deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do, by my deeds. Now, there's a distinction he's, he's making very clear here in verses 18 to 20. He goes on in verse 19 after he says that and says, Now you believe there's one God? Well, good. Even the demons believe there is a God, and they do. They know there is a God. But that's not genuine faith just because you believe that there is a God. Many people in this world believe there is a God or many gods. Even if someone believes there is a God out there, a greater, higher being, well, even the demons know that, and they believe that. They understand it to be very true that he exists. But James challenges and says, that's not genuine faith, 
just to have that kind of a belief that God exists. He says, you foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? You see, James puts a person who merely professes to believe in God in the same category as a demon who also just professes to believe that God exists. Verse 18, he says, someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Maybe it's kind of like saying, well, maybe you have the gifts of faith and knowledge and I have the gifts of mercy and compassion. And so you use your gifts of knowledge and I'll use my gifts of mercy and compassion. In other words, someone with the gifts of knowledge and of truth and using it in those ways, they really not needed in order to act compassionate towards their fellow man or neighbor or brother. He says, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, we all are called to have that which we do match with that which we profess to be true in our heart. We must all have a heart and act towards others mercifully, kindly, compassionately, forgivingly in ways in which it's evidencing our faith that is inside of our heart. Verse 18, he says, show me your faith without these and I'll show you my faith by what I do. James is basically saying, I believe that I possess true faith by God's grace. He has given me such and my faith will always be evidenced by action. The faith I have, not that I will always every time do what I'm supposed to do, but my faith will be evidenced in some ways at some times by what I do. You see, he's not saying that in every time, in every place, at every opportunity, he perfectly obeys God's laws and commands. And that every opportunity that comes across his path, he seeks to fulfill it and is able to do so. By no means, James is not saying that. No one can do such. But he is saying that I do possess true faith and I do seek to have my faith lived out and evidenced by what I do, how I live my life. The two do go together. They are not separate. James reminds us basically of the ministry of the word and deed. You see, God's word is certainly vital to understanding how and whom we're called to worship and to follow and yield ourselves. But the ministry of both word called the church to be and the ministry of deed go hand in hand. You see, Christ Community Church, we're called to the ministry of the word and deed, not just ministry of the word. We're called to both and not just ministries of deeds. They must both exist in the life of our ministry, in the life of our church, in our own individual lives, the ministry of the word and the ministry of deeds go together. The preaching of the gospel must be accompanied by actions which seek to meet the physical, social, emotional, and spiritual needs of those that God has given us to reach, you see. Certainly we seek to reach them with the word of the gospel, the truth of God's word, but we do so in ways that are very practical and real, not just simply quoting Scripture to people as they have situations of their life arise and then merely say, 
I'll pray for you. I hope, that's, I hope, I hope you're going to be okay. And then just leave them without thinking about the practical, real needs of their life and what they're going through. You know, I grew up in the Reformed Church. That's my heritage. That's the, chi- that's the church of my childhood, the church of the, really the only church I've known. I've been involved in other uh, expressions of the church at large, but mainly, primarily, the historical Reformed Church has been my particular environment of being in the church. And the Reformed Church certainly has a very blessed, I believe, rich understanding of the gospel of grace. And it's rooted in sound doctrine in the scriptures as God has given them to us. And I so much appreciate that. And I hope you do too. If you don't, start. (laughs) Because you need to really appreciate that the church truly valuing God's word the way that we do value God's word. That said, Truth expressed without love and compassion in action just ends up as empty words. Even if it's God's word and he says, it shall not return void, I understand that to be true, and yet he's called us as we share the word of God in ministry that it's accompanied with our deed with that which we express in love and compassion. Just yesterday, I was with one of the elders, and we had an opportunity and a blessing to go minister to a family and to pray with them, to be there with them, and just listen to what God is allowing going on in their life, to cry with them, to listen to them, to sit with them, to pray with them, to cover them with prayer, to read Scripture to them. And you know, as we were doing those things in the living room, two different members of Christ Community Church knocked on the door and came in and and were ministering throughout that entire two-hour process to the physical needs of the family, the emotional needs of the family, the whole situation. It was a beautiful picture of exactly what I'm talking about. Four different members of this congregation were ministering to one family in that two-hour period. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, there wasn't anything that wasn't covered. I couldn't have walked out with my chest any, stuck out any further as the pastor of Christ Community Church from that home that day, I mean yesterday. It wasn't, I shouldn't be that way, I know. Prideful, but I, I was just proud inside. I was pleased inside to watch the body of Christ be the body of Christ, to see faith in action, to see faith and the ministry of the word and deed go hand in hand, side by side, and see how powerful it was, and to see those who received it to be so blessed as they were yesterday. What a blessing. What a rich blessing. And we have that. We have opportunity to be that for one another. Be that for one another. So the spiritual argument here is very clear as James puts forth that faith without works is not genuine and it must be accompanied by the works that God has given us to do. But then he moves on and gives us a biblical and theological understanding 
to help us support this argument that he has put forth in James chapter 2. James moves to support the argument by referring to two well-known biblical figures in the Scriptures, especially would be known by a Jewish reader, particularly. Look at verses 21 through 23. He describes Abraham's and Rahab's righteousness. Verse 21, he asks, Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the Scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You know, James brings up Israel's greatest patriarch here, Abraham. I mean, if you're going to... If you're going to go ahead and pull a name, if you're going to drop a name as one who's reaching a Jewish audience, this is the name to drop right here. I mean, he's the gold standard for the Jews when you talk about faith and God. What he did, and he was called with his son Isaac, just stands tall to be seen clearly for the faith God gave him with his own son. So, James says, the Scripture was fulfilled that says. What Scripture is that? Of course, referring all the way back to Genesis 15, 15, 15.6, it says, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. You see, at that time in Genesis 15, Abram was 86 years old, married, of course, and unable to have children. He was 86 years old when it says his faith was credited to him as righteousness. And then just two chapters later in Genesis 17, when he was circumcised, he was 99 years old. 13 years between the act of circumcision at age 99 and then age 86 when it says His faith was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, he believed God, and he received the righteousness of God. Thirteen years later, the act, the deed, the work of cutting the flesh in obedience to God's command took place. In other words, the work did not precede the belief, the faith. Faith in receiving the righteousness of God was prior to, to the act of circumcision. Romans chapter 4 clarifies exactly what happened in Genesis 15 through 17. Paul writes, We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. In other words, even righteousness for those who believe will be received. And it's not connected to the act of circumcision or the sign of the covenant. It is the covenant that God established with Abraham with his people 
that is giving, is giving us righteousness being credited to our account. You see in verse 22 of James here, he says that his faith was made complete, that is Abram, with, by what he did. What did he do? He was willing by faith to raise the knife and to sacrifice his son Isaac. He was willing to do that in faith, trusting, trusting that God was going to provide. You know, in verse 25, James now brings up another example. Familiar still to the Jewish audience, but in some sense, quite a surprising choice of uh, whom one should speak, out, speak about in regards to faith and deeds. In verse 25, in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did? Interesting choice. James chooses Rahab as an example. I mean, he could have picked, if you think about all the others, you had Abram, of course, but he could have picked so many other choices from the patriarchs or the list of those that the Jews would have considered just as, as in Hebrews chapter 11, all the examples of faith, but he chose Rahab, a Gentile, not a Jew, a woman, not a man, a prostitute, not someone of noble reputation. That's whom he chose, and she's the one he lifts up as an example of faith and trusting in Yahweh as one who trusted, and then it was credited as righteousness to her as well. What an amazing choice to choose. Rahab, showing that her actions there with the spies matched her faith, just as Abraham's actions with Isaac matched his faith. Rahab as well. She protected the spies of Israel and then sent the king's messengers out of the city. Even though she was one that maybe would not be a choice of an Israelite as an example, yet she is exactly the reason why James would choose her. In other words, James is making a statement here. He chose Abraham, but then he also chose Rahab. It wasn't just merely it has to be of the Jewish descent. It wasn't merely a patriarch. No, it was even Rahab expressed the faith that God gave her, and it was credit to her as righteousness. Both Abraham and Rahab are commended for their faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And so <clears throat> the, the theological and biblical understanding, James continues to argue with these two examples known by his reader. But then he makes this one statement in verse 24 that we need just to kind of sit down on for a minute and really dig in and try to understand this verse. This is probably one of the most critical verses to misinterpret in all of Scripture. In fact, there are churches, denominations, large groups who have based much of their theology on this verse. Wrongly. So we need to be, be sure we understand what James is saying. Verse 24 of chapter 2. <clears throat> you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Okay? 
When I was in seminary, I took one of my theology classes with Dr. R.C. Sproul. Um, He's no longer teaching at the seminary, but when I was there, he taught this class. In this particular class, I think it was pneumatology and angiology or something. It was one of the minor theological classes we had to take, and yet he taught it. And I, I don't believe we ever really covered much of that particular material, but I know he certainly gave us a lot of other stuff. Um, staying on the class syllabus was not one of his primary giftings, but he was an amazing, knowledgeable man and certainly was well gifted in communicating the truth of God's word and doctrine. And so I'll never forget, we went into class one day, about 80 of us in this class were sitting there, and he goes, someone have James chapter 2? And so we all opened our Bibles up. He said, well, someone read that please out loud. Verse 24. Someone read verse 24. Boom, there you go. What is this verse saying, he asked at the beginning of class. Of course, we're sitting there looking. I'm like, I'm not going to answer this question because I know this is a trap. So we start answering the question. He goes, well, what does the verse say? And we read the verse. And so the verse says, you see, a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Isn't that what the verse says? Well, yes, that's what the verse says, but, and then he would just continue to argue. For two hours straight, every, almost every guy in the class tried to figure out a way to defend the argument against him. He was, he was basically defending that you are justified by what you do before God and not by faith. That's what the verse says. And we went around and around. Finally, after two hours, he said, okay, class, take a break. We went out, came back, and he said, now, what did you learn? And we said, well, we're not sure. He said, here's what you learned. Number one, Whenever you are arguing with someone theologically, you need to know their position as, be- as good, if not better, than your own on what they understand. Many people don't know, and I believe this is true, that Dr. Sproul has a doctorate in Catholic theology. He understands doctrine from other perspectives very well. He says, second thing you learn is the man with the microphone always wins. <laughs> and he was right, because he would very carefully uh, stop people from speaking at certain points and continue on in the way he handled it. But he really challenged us on this particular statement that James makes. How can James say such a thing? You are justified by what you do and not by faith alone. I mean, doesn't that just kind of disembowel the gospel completely? that I've taught and preached for 12 years? It does. But that's what it says. i never forget John Piper said this one time at a conference. I heard him. He said, you can say what the Bible says, but not mean what the Bible means. You can say what the Bible says, and I just did, but I, I might not be saying what the Bible means in this verse. Possibly one of the most misinterpreted verses in all of Scripture is James 2.24. And so what do we have to do? We have to read verse 24, and it's what? Context, first of all. It's immediate context, and it's broader context. Context is critical when you're understanding Scripture and interpreting it. Context is critical when you're in speaking. Why do you think sound bites in the media and our culture are what they are? 
Everyone gets misinterpreted all over the media because they use sound bites, which are pithy, short statements taken out of context most often. That's a sound bite. We don't want to do sound bite theology with James chapter 2. We want to read it and understand it on what he's, how he's built his argument in its context. What is the immediate context of verse 24? James has just explained how faith without works is dead and how true faith must be expressed by action, not merely words. That's the context. Verse 24 is sandwiched right between... Two significant examples from history and from Scripture that the Israelites would know, his audience, of how obedience and action is evidence of their faith, of true faith. The broader context is, of course, the rest of Scripture. Many of the places in Scripture which would refute and contradict verse 24 being interpreted as a believer must have faith and works to be justified before God are many. Just to name one or two, Titus verse 3, chapter 3 verse 5 says, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. Galatians 5, 4 and 5, you who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace, but by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. But possibly the clearest, concise statement and argument is from the Apostle Paul in chapter 3 of Romans, verse 28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law or apart from good works. So what you have is you have Paul saying this and you have James saying this, right? How can we understand? Well, it's like a coin, and you have two sides to the coin. Paul is one side of the coin. James is the other side of the coin. It's the same coin. They're both seeking to say the same thing, but from different perspectives, from different sides of that truth. Paul, in Romans 3.28, is clarifying that we are justified before God by faith alone, through grace alone not by observing or obeying the law, not by works of obedience. Very clearly, Romans is stating that. James, in his context of his argument that he builds and the way that he goes about declaring his theological truth, is making the statement that as true faith is present, it should be necessarily accompanied by obedience to the law of God. It should be accompanying. There are five flags, they call them, of the historical Reformation. Probably the only Latin I know very well. Uh, <clears throat> sola de gloria, to God alone be the glory. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola Christos, Christ alone. And sola fide, faith alone. Faith alone. Paul clearly teaches this flag of truth in Romans 4 when he says, Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, 
but trusts God who justifies the wicked. His faith is credited as righteousness. To the man who does not work, his faith is credited as righteousness. You can't get more clearer than that, understanding that we do not and are not justified before God. We do not receive the righteousness of God because of our works of the law, our obedience to the law. Luther said this phrase, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Someone else has kind of moved the, the words around and say it goes like this, we are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. We are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone, which says our faith must be accompanied by evidence. Evidence of works of obedience. <clears throat> you see, the, the two elements of the theological formula are good works and true faith. These are the two elements we have before us. And the formula can be asserted one way, but not the other. Do you follow? Works and faith. You can assert those together in a statement one way, but you can't reverse it, because if you do, then that's where we go in error. You can, and here's how the formula would, get, formula would be stated. You can present apparent good works or morality. You can present apparent good works in your life, but not truly possess genuine faith. You can do that. You know this, right? People do it every day around us. They don't truly have faith in Christ. Their hearts are not given to Him. They have not been captured by His love and grace. And yet they live lives that are very moral, very much. They help people all the time around them. They're compassionate, philanthropic, all kinds of things. And yet they do not possess genuine faith. But you cannot possess true, genuine faith and never present good works and obedience to the law and obedience to Christ as evidence. It just can't be. You cannot truly know Jesus and it not be evidenced in your life. It just, it just does not exist. That is not possible. Now, granted... You hear this and you go, I think I'm in trouble here. No. To what degree are those evidences there? Hopefully, let's say they are ever presently growing in your life. Some of us need to address things in our life and begin to address them and grow in ways that others don't right now, whereas others are growing in various ways in respect differently. We all are on different places of the race of faith. We're at different places. No one's the same, but here's the key. We're all in the race, and we're all evidencing true, genuine faith that comes out in how our lives present it. Our faith inwardly must be displayed by works of piety, mercy, and service in the body of Christ, outside the body of Christ, to the world. 
That's the light that we shine of the gospel working in and through us. Our motto as a church, you know the motto, change lives, change hearts, change community. Maybe you never thought about the motto this way. I did 13 years ago when God gave me a focus of this motto. And that it is actually a theological formula. Changed hearts, changed lives, changed community. How is that? There's theology in the motto. Here it is. First, there must be a changed heart. First. Then there will be necessarily and must be a life that is changed because the heart has been changed. And as the result of a life together with other lives together, there will be change in a community, whether in the church or outside of the church in the world, that there's an impact. There is a resulting impact because of a life that is displaying and giving evidence for a truly changed heart that possesses faith. That's the progression. That's how it is supposed to work. That is how Scripture gives us understanding. That's what James is basically saying here today. There is a necessary progression for all of us. And it's a cycle. God continues to change our heart daily. And our lives continue to change daily in accordance with the work that He's doing in our very soul. And then, as a result... Our world we live in receives that benefit of the life and heart of every believer being changed, ongoing, processed in our life. God has given us an opportunity to see our faith evidenced by what we do, what we say, how we live, so that the world will know that we're His and how we love one another, how we love them well. May our works not be at all the reason for why God loves us at all. It's not a cause and effect in the sense that God loves us because of our work. It is just the opposite. Our evidence of obedience to Christ is the result of what God and Christ has already done in your very soul.